Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. A new capability from the Defense Information Systems Agency aims to give warfighters what it calls situational awareness of the electromagnetic spectrum. The spectrum itself has become a battle space, so it's important to know what's going on there. Here with more on the Baby Steps version of this tool, the Deputy Director of the Program Executive Office Spectrum, Kevin Laughlin. Mr. Laughlin, good to have you with us. Thank you. Glad to be with you today. And let's begin with some basic definitions here. Situational awareness in the electromagnetic spectrum. It sounds like you want to see the invisible here. <laughs> That's a, an interesting way to describe it. And uh, yes, situational awareness is a, a key uh, aspect of command and control understanding uh, what's going on around in the environment around you, whether that's air, land, sea, space, cyber domains, and of course now the spectrum domain is becoming very critical to uh, all things we do across all those warfighting domains. With EMBM joint situational awareness, one of the things that we're doing for the Department for Warfighters is bringing together multiple disparate feeds of data, raw and other data sets. And what this will allow operators to do is make sense of this information where previously they would have had to have gone to uh, a number of different sources, a number of different software capabilities. EMBM Joint Situational Awareness brings that data together into one location where they can visualize it and they can gain that situational awareness, that understanding of what's happening in the spectrum. Therefore, very quickly put information in front of the staff and decision makers so that they can make decisions more quickly than the enemy. And what can happen in the spectrum? I mean, the spectrum is out there and information, orders, imagery, and so on are going back and forth over it with radios and so forth. So tell us more about what can happen in there that you would need to know about. People trying to jam it, for example? Uh, yes, a number of things. Clearly, radio frequency waves carry data, all types of data and information back and forth, again, so that we can send and receive orders, transmit information out to the tactical edge, but also sense and make sense of the different signals and emissions that are happening in the radio frequency spectrum. So being able to bring in what we know about ourselves, what we are discovering, sensing about other emitters, both coalition, enemy, and even commercial, that all has a great impact on the congestion uh, constraints in uh, the spectrum and how we want to operate, how we want to maneuver. So uh, the situational awareness capability brings that information together so we can make sense of it much more quickly and uh, make decisions at the speed of uh, relevance. And can this help in two different ways? One, knowing what the opponent or the enemy might be doing by putting up an antenna and seeing the nature and content perhaps of their emissions of waveforms. And can it also help plan the best pathway and the best frequency for our own forces to make sure that they can get the message through. Yes, absolutely. You hit on a couple of pieces. Uh, one, understanding uh, what other emitters are out there, uh, adversarial, you know, or even um, other government, the host nation, etc. cetera. Uh, it helps us better understand, uh, and as you pointed out, at times when there's congestion or interference from some of those signals, we can quickly identify and take steps to mitigate, and that might be moving our own use to another part of the spectrum. Those are all decisions that take place within that operating headquarters, but clearly you pointed on a couple things. Having that awareness, that situational awareness of what's happening in the uh, electromagnetic spectrum environment and being able to very quickly make sense of that information and make decisions that help our fighting forces stay ahead of their adversaries. And during a situation, a battle, or during a 
say, a large-scale exercise that the military would conduct with another nation. Is there someone or a certain staff devoted to monitoring the spectrum during that operation? Yes, there's actually a number of uh, staff functions across the J-Code, the Joint Code staff elements. You have electronic signals collecting, you have maneuver and fires, and you have the planning and and management of the uh, cyber network actions. The department is actually evolving doctrinally to a concept referred to as uh, EMSO, EMS operations, where some of those functions are being consolidated, aligned under traditionally a J3 and operations code in what's referred to as a GEMSOC, a joint EMS operations cell. And they would be the primary users of the EMBMJ, the product line. Not all the uh, department is uh, aligned that way, so you still may have, and you you even outside of the GEMSOC would have uh, EMS operations, folks wanting to use or able to use these capabilities. We're speaking with Kevin Laughlin. He's Deputy Director of the Program Executive Office Spectrum at the Defense Information Systems Agency. And what precisely have you produced here? Integrative type of software layer? Is this an application that someone would run on on a PC? And what are some of the types of data that you had to integrate? Because I imagine with all of these different bandwidths and operations, it's a varied kind of vegetable stew of, of data types you'd have to deal with. EMVMJ situational awareness in the overall program effort aligns with combined joint all-domain command and control in terms of a framework and guiding principles, reference architectures to allow for interoperability. In this case with EMVMJ, for example, it's a cloud capability. The minimum viable capability release is a first iteration, if you will. In fact, uh, the MVCR is uh, defined as the initial set of features suitable to be fielded to an operational environment providing value to the uh, warfighter or the end user in a rapid timeline. So the MVCR delivers uh, initial warfighting capabilities to enhance some of the mission outcomes. It's sometimes referred to as a minimum marketable product in the commercial industry. Right, so you're a step beyond beta at this point. This is something that's deployable. The system went live on the uh, 6th of December, and it is in the hands of the department. There's users today utilizing uh, this minimum viable capability release. And what we intend to do is uh, continue to build on the uh, current capability. We have plans to bring in uh, additional data feeds back to the uh, first question you asked, uh, the ability to uh, auto uh, correlation of events to enable the user to quickly see possible causes of electromagnetic interference, additional engineering services to support modeling and simulation of activities within the spectrum. We're bringing in additional satellite data and modeling a number of different things. And additionally, working with some federal uh, defense uh, research centers looking to identify uh, AI ML use cases for implementation in the future iterations as well. Yeah, I was going to say, there's got to be AI in here somewhere. There is everything else. (laughs) Yes, that is the plan. And there's some initial uh, work in in that area to identify opportunities to uh, better understand, utilize that common data layer that's part of the electromagnetic battle management joint uh, situational awareness capability. So uh, as I said earlier, we align with the uh, CJET C2 guiding principles, and one of those is a minimum essential required metadata within the uh, EMBMJ situational common uh, sure. situational awareness common data layer that utilizes open REST APIs, implementation of identity, credential, and monitoring, ICAM. We're working with the CJET C2 working group to map EMBMJ capabilities to uh, multiple different mission function areas across the joint force. And as I said earlier, exploring uh, implementation of AIML use cases, utilizing enterprise transport solutions for uh, resiliency 
And also uh, a big thing that we like to talk about is the uh, use of a software factory pipeline and agile development. Uh, this is critical because uh, we uh, are able to get enhancements, upgrades out to the users more quickly. But uh, using these uh, agile software development processes, we have um, regular routine engagement with the users. And that's really critical for a number of reasons. As the environment changes and as we uh, learn lessons from real world events, we can very quickly use uh, work with the requirements uh, group to update the requirements, make sure that we are you know, staying on top of uh, what they need. Uh, but also we're getting direct feedback into uh, the development processes and the uh, users are able to tell us whether we're on the right track or not. Right. Somebody in the field could say, hey, you missed this particular thing we really need to know about. And you could find a way to inculcate that data into this tool. Absolutely. And uh, we work uh, very closely with the joint community, uh, primarily led by U.S. Uh, Strategic Command. U.S. Stratcom is the joint sponsor, their proponent for uh, joint EMS operations. And they are a great teammate in bringing the joint community together and identifying the uh, changes, the, the TTPs, the things that are happening in the world, bringing that back to the requirements uh, processes, ensuring that we're on top of it. And then, like you said, making sure that the users are getting what they need. And there's this overarching effort going on, the Combined Joint All-Domain Command and Control, JADC2, is a Pentagon-wide effort, and then each of the armed services is developing their own C2, if you will, to interoperate under JADC2. This new tool you are deploying, that'll work with future JADC2 pieces? Yes, absolutely. The uh, CJADC2 uh, concept or construct is really uh, best described as a framework, if you will, a reference design, a reference architecture that guides and maintains interoperability. So as you uh, address command and control functions from the uh, strategic to the uh, joint operational levels of war and down to the component, the service level and tactical, by having a framework that's understood and designs and standards to ensure interoperability, things that I mentioned earlier, ICAM, zero trust, uh, exchange standards, cloud native development, microservices, all those things help, as you pointed out, uh, ensure interoperability and very rapid data exchange, information exchanges so that we uh, are able to allow our decision makers to make decisions very quickly ahead of their adversaries. Kevin Laughlin is Deputy Director of the Program Executive Office Spectrum at the Defense Information Systems Agency. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Very happy to be here today. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. 
And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
what do they need when they need it, and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.